Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Tonight, we will be drinking our coffee from a massive chalice. But first, we need some coffee, which is why we have our friend, quarter to three blogger, Tom Check. I'm sorry, I'm not serving coffee today, but if anybody would like a nice cup of age and rage, I will gladly uh, bring it to you. Okay, I'll buy it. What, what on earth is age and rage? Is that... <laughs> Is, oh, is my that, God. Tall boy? oh my God! Oh my God! It sounds like yeah. It sounds like somebody still needs to do some research in Massive Chalice. That's right. You've been, you've been prioritizing the wrong things. You need to kill some more wrinklers. <laughs> yeah. So age and rage, and we'll, we'll get into the game plan a little bit. It's it's a great example of uh, how uh, Massive Chalice ties together the tactical level and the strategic level. Uh, the tactical considerations with the long term strategic considerations. There are a couple of really clever things the game does, and Age and Rage potions are one of those examples. Okay, see, for me, I just had the wrong context. I was trying to place Age and Rage uh, in the 40 aisle of a liquor store, uh, so that's that's where my mind was going. <laughs> uh, anyway, we also welcome back our friend, game designer from the Game Design Roundtable, David Heron. Thank you. Super excited to be back again. Yeah, so today we're going to be talking about Double Fine's Massive Chalice, and uh, that is a game that... Uh, David, you seemed quite eager to talk about a couple weeks back, and Tom, you not only reviewed it very positively over on Quarter to Three, but you also devoted a, uh, a quite a few entries and a really cool game diary, uh, sort of chronicling your misadventures in, in Massive Chalice. Uh, David, I want to s- start off with you a, a little bit. Um, where So where does Massive Chalice come from? Because Double Fine is a game that I think for a lot of people... Uh, is a studio for a lot of people. They still associate it with, sort of with adventure games. This is more of an XCOM-like game. So what's what's going on here? Uh, so Massive Chalice is uh, sort of the brainchild of Brad Muir, who um, previous to this was the lead on Iron Brigade or its original name, which Trenched. may be Trenched, right? And it popped up on Kickstarter, and so I'm sure there is a great video on on the Kickstarter page. Um, but my understanding is this was sort of a um, had some great ideas. Uh, I think they're pretty much populated by probably playing a little XCOM, playing a little Crusader Kings. If I had to guess, a little bit of dis- disappointment from uh, uh, Total War II, Rome's lack of the 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 generational sort of feature that was from the previous iteration. And, uh, and I, and he just sort of made this Kickstarter plea to said like, Hey, I got this really great idea. I want to bash all these things together. Uh, give us some money. And they raised some amount enough to make it happen. And, uh, Tom, you're you're very very high on this game, and you know, ever since XCOM, it seems like we we've had no shortage of uh, you know tactical RPG type games. What makes what makes Massive Chalice stand out for you? Um, basically, there are a couple of things that I, I love about what it does. Um, you're right in that these uh, you know you can't really throw a rock without hitting some XCOM derivative like tactical game. Uh, but what what makes this one stand out for me? Uh, is how they tie in the strategic level and the tactical level, because that's the big challenge in a, a game like this. How do I care about any given battle? You know, how do I how do I connect it to the other battles that I'm fighting? And for me, what Massive Chalice does to to make me care a lot about the specific battles is creates a sense of you're not building a base like you are in XCOM. You are instead engineering and shepherding bloodlines over the course of literally centuries. Um, David mentioned the Crusader Kings connection, and that's a big part of it as well, except Crusader Kings is founded on this paradox model of a really complicated gameplay, uh, uh, a lot of historical detail. Um, There's a lot of extra stuff in Crusader Kings too, and that's instrumental to make it work for the people who love it. But what Massive Chalice does is it streamlines all of this other stuff out of it. Like, it doesn't have a lot of crazy trappings, and there's not a million units, and, and you don't have a bazillion details, and you don't have all this st- strategic-level fiddling. It just cuts straight to, these are your bloodlines, these are the things that you are protecting, that you're shepherding, that you're carrying forward, and the battles are just a matter of surviving for the 300 years to keep your bloodlines alive. So it's that, it's that persistence, this idea of 
families mattering more than individual units that, that I really respond to in Massive Chalice. So one of the things that I really adore is it has it has a, a really sort of charming, I guess you call it sort of classically double finey, uh, you know, vibe around the entire thing. But it, it sort of it, it sort of introduces you to to it, its essential weirdness right at the start when you're sort of greeted with the throne room and introduced to uh, a, a pair of characters sort of describing your role as, as as the ruler of this of this besieged kingdom and you're you're literally being addressed by a, a massive chalice uh, and the beings that the beings that live inside it but one of the one of the interesting things is it's definitely sort of borrowing a little bit from sort of the XCOM strategic overview, right? Where you can you you can sort of, you're trying to hold back an, an ever rising tide, but the game is sort of structured so that no matter like e- even if you're playing well, uh, you are eventually going to be sort of driven up against the wall um, as it happens. So so it end, you know so eventually it's it's all about sort of the map uh, turning hostile. Uh, and, tur- and and turning against you, uh, and, and I'm curious how you guys felt that that strategic layer worked, and how th- there's a lot of research choices you can make along the way, and where you want to sort of build your infrastructure. And, I, and I'm it, it's very simple, but I always felt like I was doing the wrong thing, and I, I'm kind of curious how how you guys reacted to that strategic layer. You know, Rob, I want to I want to I want to just challenge you one second. Did you feel like you were doing the wrong thing or did you just never feel like you were doing the right thing? Because I would say that those are two different things. And I felt the latter. I never felt like I was given. Uh, I never knew if that was if that was the right choice. If that was a good choice or not. Mm-hmm. Now, when you say choices, was, David, do you mean in the sense of the uh, the random events or the, the 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 bloodlines you were setting up or where you were building so things? All of the all of the above. Okay, so for listeners, um, there's a couple of different uh, couple of different things that go on here. Actually, there's a lot of different things that go on the strategic level. So the first thing that you have to do is you have to choose whether or not you're going to uh, who's going to be the regent of your territory. So you're, you 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 put some people in in charge and you give them a partner and they have children and those children will eventually become your warriors and they will eventually become the leaders of new territory you also do some research and research falls into two two sort of uh i would say uh paths and one is building so you can create new castles that can hold new great families on new terrain um, you can create, uh, you know, what is essentially your like research station and you can have your training station or you can do things like upgrade your weapons and, 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 and equipment. Uh, and then the last thing on the map is is tactical battles and so or, or, or the strategic battles. And uh, about every 10 years, uh, the cadence who are the, the enemy will attack on uh, two or three fronts. And if uh, you can only defend one and the ones that you don't defend you uh you sort of you get a little pip and if you get three pips of cadence corruption you lose that territory for permanently at every single impasse here i never really got a lot of affirmation that i was doing a great job and so that 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 that's how i felt so i felt a little bit lost too rob well i guess okay so one thing that's certainly strengthened my uh, my my conviction that I was doing the the absolute wrong thing was uh, just like let, let's talk about various ways my games failed. All right, okay. Let, let's talk about various like bitter ends to to my kingdom. Uh, the first one was I, I sort of dived in and uh, you know right off the bat I, I I started you know breeding my heroes and, and that sort of thing, but it didn't really dawn on me until it was too late that. The classes of heroes you marry will determine mm-hmm. the classes of heroes you get. And so the thing is, because by the time I realized this, I was like a generation in and a lot of my original. Um, so basically, all, like my most fertile people were all. Um, oh, God, what's what's the name? It's the, it's the melee fighters, but they got a ridiculous name. And I can never Caber remember Jack. it. Caberjack. Caber. Caber. Caberjack. Yeah. Caberjack. Caberjacks. So all my caber jacks were sort of my breeding stock, but then about like thirty years in, all I had was caber jacks, and there mm-hmm. there were no other classes. 
And so it became this thing where it was like children of men, but for archery. <laughs> where right, I'm just like, right. I'm like, we're, we're t- like, I'm taking missions trying to get other character classes because you get rewards for uh, the missions you fulfill. You can also, by the way, and I, I feel a lot, uh, I, I don't mean to cut you off here, Rob, but I feel a lot of the complaints about this game come from people either not understanding the design or not understanding certain things that you can do within the game, which is partly you could lay that blame at the, at the foot of the documentation. But, Rob, one of the things you can do with your research is scour the kingdom and just get a handful of new, uh, basically, literally, new blood. You just get yeah. dumped, mm-hmm. you get a bunch of new heroes dumped into your lap, and you can use those to get out of, it sounded like you were in what might be called a caberjack lock. You could get out of your caberjack lock by uh, getting new blood using one of your research options. I right, think. And, 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 I, and I noticed that, and I, and I knew that, but I also felt very much like I was, um, I guess sort of to, to uh, David's point, the, the sense that whatever move, like the, the sense that I was always going to be making the wrong move. Like for some reason, I got really hung up on the idea of being sort of self-sufficient and I did, because everything you do is, is going to consume time. And I probably got way too stingy about like using time. Like it, it's, mm-hmm. it's very, like for those early hero drafts, it's fairly trivial the amount of time you're going to spend getting those heroes. But for some reason I just sort of tunnel visioned on, okay, well I'm going to get, if I get, if I do this mission, get an archer and then I immediately put her in a castle and start like having lots of little archer babies then everything will be cool in like 20 years so i just gotta i just gotta win this mission and hold out and so that led to um sort of a a caber jack catastrophe uh where you know i was i was like starting to deal with some pretty serious uh opposition and my army was like you know four out of five of my troops were were caber jacks uh that's just that's not going to work uh, and then game two was me reacting to that failure by being a little smarter about how I was reading my breeding my people and, uh, you know, sort of diversifying my, my initial moves a little bit better and planting down a lot more keeps to get that initial group of heroes producing lots of more diverse classes. And that was working really well, uh, except I wasn't investing in weapons technology and armor technology. And so... That so at a certain point I had, I had a pretty well balanced hero economy and I was pretty happy with that, but then my then I just sort of went off the cliff because I just could not like I could not I, I, I could neither eat the damage I needed to nor could I put down the damage I needed to uh, to to get my to get through these battles without suffering like massive casualties. Hmm. What level are you playing at, Rob? Um. Oh, you know. Game like, two. Are you playing on? Uh, the first game was on normal. Game two was uh, was on hard. But yeah, I didn't you're notice. not you're not ready for that. So here's my experience. I think the the overall arc of experiencing massive chalice of being a guy who's like, hey, here's this new game. I'm going to sit down and play it. I think the overall arc for how people experience this, and I, I kind of feel this is intentional, um, is that you play once to figure out the mechanics while you're playing wrong. In your case, Rob, the caberjack lock. You know, you, you you play once and you're just you're getting people married and you're enjoying the tactical battles. It's all very streamlined, and you realize part way through that playthrough, holy cats, I'm doing it wrong. I'm I'm in this terrible situation. Uh, I'm losing. I've created a catastrophe. But it kind of teaches you the importance of a, a eugenics program, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so you play once to play wrong, then you play again to play right. You realize as, as you're doing with your second playthrough, Rob. Oh. Uh, you know, I need to be more careful about having diversified uh, classes being bred. Uh, I need to watch which territories I defend and which I let fall away. Um, I need to build a Sage Rights Guild, and I need a Crucible to help my training. So the second time, you're playing right. However, the second time, you will then learn the game's dirty little secret when you lose the game because the third time you play, you are going to understand how Massive Chalice works. And how Massive Chalice works is your goal isn't just to survive for 300 years. It's to reach the final battle of the game, which happens after 300 years, with healthy, flourishing bloodlines. And there's a gameplay reason for that that I'm reluctant to, to say because it's kind of a really cool spoiler. And, and one of the things I most appreciated about the game, so few games really know how to end. You know, a developer comes up with these mechanics and these concepts, and they're like, yeah, and these 
these experiences and emotions they want people to feel. They build a game around that. And they don't really have this sense of, and it's going to come to a great payoff. So they put a stupid boss battle at the end or whatever. Or they don't even bother with the boss battle. They just end the game. Massive Chalice ends with a really cool payoff. And it all comes down to you're trying to survive for 300 years and then succeed at that really cool payoff. Um, so the overall way, you play wrong, then you play right and you lose, then you play right and you win, ideally. But in order to play right and, and lose, like I, I think if you jump ahead to hard, you really screw yourself because you're not you might not even get to that final battle. When you do, you you might lose anyway. Um but I feel, and they, they even kind of say this, if I'm not mistaken, with a disclaimer. Uh, they even say, hey, really, trust us, just play on normal. For your first time, just stick with normal. Uh, and I do think that's important so you can see through the, the arc of the game and get to that really cool reveal in the final battle. My experience was a little bit different. I, uh, I played uh, once, and I played maybe about 50 years, and then I started seeing, oh, okay, well, then I sort of realized, oh, I need to uh, build up some more citadels quickly so I can actually get some, some more years. But very quickly, uh, early on, I realized, I, I really like these archers. And it's pretty straightforward. It's like, well, the first enemies that they throw at you are like, well, some explode on contact. Some, when they... Actually, two different types. So one explodes on contact, leaving corrosive goo. The other one explodes on contact uh, or on on death, and it stuns everyone. And another one is just like a terrible melee fighter. So it's like, I'm just going to stay far, far away. And I created my eugenics program was just archer-focused. Hunters. I found the most nimble, the most quick-witted. I didn't care if they were, like, slow or asthmatic. They're not running. They're just going to sit there and shoot. And I created this master race of archers, and I had no, nothing else. I just had hunters. And I that carried me out through the entire game. They were shooting twice each and the, with unlimited penetrating shots, and they were all invisible, and the AI couldn't deal with it. And so I just, I just every, every mission, I just popped smoke, and I just <laughs> set up my kill zones and slaughtered everything. I, I got the perfect, the, there's an achievement for... Completing a battle without ever taking a hit, I probably got that one ten times over. I do, I do like how you, how you play games, David. It's 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 always <laughs> a delight hearing hearing your uh, hearing the the various fissures you find in the design and and then exploit the daylights out of. Though that actually does track with my experience because like what part of the thing I realized in the midst of my 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 caberjack lock uh, was that. Caberjacks kind of sucked in comparison to having some good hunters, and uh, definitely they became the focus of, of my of my second game, trying to sort of breed them. Uh, but may, maybe it sh- that should be even more the overwhelming focus because they definitely do seem because of the the types of enemies, basically because of the ruptures. Really, if I'm being honest, mm-hmm. because the, the 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 sort of suicide bomber units, the the units that run up to you and and explode. Uh, and 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 throw that corrosive bile everywhere. Um, because of those guys, every single mission, uh, I, I was sort of tiptoeing through trying to sight the enemy. And then if I, you know, if I didn't have enough hunters, if I just had one hunter, uh, that that one hunter ended up being uh, sort of like the exterminator, right? It was just like, oh, found another rupture, and they, you know, hunter has to you know, schlep over there, and you know, what do we got here? Another rupture, and kill it, and so it became a real grind because I just be sort of kiting around the ruptures, and then the hunter be killing everything. Well, later on, you meet the uh, the 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 whispers, no, the oh, the uh, whiskers, the the people who age you, and I think that sort of withers, I think is withers, one of those yeah. things. Uh, yes, yes, right. Wrinklers. Wrinklers. I was calling them withers. Yeah. Wrinklers. That 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 uh, that Tom sort of uh, alluded to, right? This connection between the tactical battle and the the strategy. And so what's really interesting is that the whole game is about this three hundred years. That's your currency, um, and each character has a certain number. They have longevity, right? So a character might be alive for sixty five years, maybe seventy. Maybe less. Maybe they have a heart condition and they die earlier. And what the wrinklers do, they're they're a melee combat unit. And when they hit you, they age your character five years. 
if your character is 60 years old and it gets hit by a, by a wrinkler, it might just die. It might die of old age right there. And so I became very, very paranoid of those. And uh, because one of the one of this cool sort of aspects is um, you if you only bring in your best guys and and and, and ga guys and gals. You, they will die of old age, and you will be left with nothing but these green troopers. And you you can't, that just won't work. And so you have to sort of cycle them out. And luckily, the game sort of provides you with, with a, a, a sort of, they can point your way out. So one of the things you can research is your training grounds, and you can hire like a standard bearer. And that's a way that you can sort of take your most hallowed, warrior and you can elevate him to this position and he will train all your recruits and he will pass on all his uh you know positive and negative psychological traits um there's uh, the research center which is the i don't know it's a librarian or the scriptorium or the guild of the sage or others. Guild. Uh, there you go sage rights guild and uh you know you you put your your uh your your wisest people there um, which, you know, at the beginning, it ended up being my eldest. But by the end of the game, I was like, 14? You're a young whippersnapper? You get in that Sage Rights Guild. I'm sorry, you do not get to fight or marry or have children. I, I want to back up real quick and, and, and talk about this idea about the, the hunters like being powerful and how you guys had these hunter-only games. Because um, I did a podcast at quarter to three with a good friend of mine, uh, where we, we didn't quite see eye to eye, he wasn't as big of a fan of Massive Chalice, and one of his objections was that he felt uh, basically that, that hunters were overpowered, that he could play through the whole game with just hunters. Um, he was basically doing what you, were, what you were describing, David, where you just have a great set of hunters, you create a kill zone, you let the monsters come to you, and you kill them. Um, and, and I feel that there, there, there can be this perception of Massive Chalice that some classes are overpowered, or you can get by with just creating a, a, a super race of hunters. Um, David, when you played with your hunter uh, base, hunter team, um, did, did you win the game? Like, did you get through and, and beat the final battle? Yeah. You beat the final battle with only hunters? Yes. Huh. On, on, well, okay, because I was going to say, I bet you didn't beat the final battle, because on the final battle, no. they rush you. You know, you can't, you have to take up damage because you are literally surrounded and, and you're not moving out on the map. You can't do that whole idea of using them to scout, creeping forward, revealing a little bit of the map, shooting things. Because you can clear the whole game probably pretty easily by just doing a hunter strategy. But you're going to get to the final right. battle and suddenly you're, you're getting, and in, in most battles you'll have maybe like 10, 15 units on the map. The final battle, and this isn't a spoiler that I don't want to reveal, but the final battle you literally have like 30 units bearing down on you all at once. And if you don't have melee, and if you don't have area of effect, which is what the three classes basically are, there are hunters, which are ranged, there are melee, which are the, the caberjacks, and then there are uh, alchemists, which throw these area effect damage vials. Um, if you don't have all three of those in the final battle, uh, and I guess this shows I don't know the game as well as I thought I did, but if you don't have mm -hmm. all three of those, I don't see how you could survive the final battle. Um, so what it's teaching you, I think, and actually it's, it's kind of not teaching you, and I can understand that people might, might feel, hey, I, you know, you just explain this to me in the manual, I don't need to learn it by playing wrong. What it's teaching you is that, yes, you can get through the game with just one class, but if you want to, to beat the game, if you want to get through and survive the final battle, you need some combined arms. You need to have all three of those elements in the final battle, namely melee, area effect damage, and, uh, and ranged damage. Yeah, the thing is that the archers do AOE anyway. Well, they can, depending they, on how you level can, them up. Can... Like, if you get a perilous core and an item shot, for instance, they're firing these, like, ranged nukes, which are awesome. Um, oh, no, I was just going to say, you just need the, the there's a there's a crossbow, it's just a basic crossbow that allows you to just shoot everything in a line. Right, yep. Yeah, so, so like, I was, you know, and and that works with the double shot. So you can, there's, there's not a single, like if you have level 10 archers or hunters and they have, you know, they're agile or whatever the case may be, um, you know, there's not, you can one shot every single character. So you can just like line up, you know, three advanced bulwarks and you, one character can just kill all three. Wow. Well, yeah, that's, that's great. Um, then. So, 
Yeah, so my experience has been that yeah. uh, there's a final battle, which I've lost several times. I'm going to play through now, or I'm finally going to beat it, which uh, is, is that you really do need some kind of tactical diversity. And I, I you know, if you if you think you can just like if 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 you're demonstrating, David, that you can just play with just hunters, then I, I certainly stand corrected. Uh, I'll have to. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure there's some pretty pretty good all alchemist runs out there as well because they can refill their vials right well the problem is you're not playing with just hunters i mean if you're trying to get some of those other things you have to crossbreed your your hunters with either alchemists or or caberjacks like if you want the uh trick shots or the enforcers which are these subclasses um yeah but i guess those are all hunter classes and you're saying that the game is beatable using Mm -hmm. only hunter classes okay yes 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 um but I think it's I think it's pretty fantastic. One of the things that that came up was, uh, uh, and maybe you can answer this because I just don't know what's going on. Is sometimes in the tactical battle, um, these like little words will pop up, and the one that kept popping up for me was like the 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 hunter. Uh, what is it? The yep. pack hunts. Yep. The pack hunts. What's going on there? Is that is that is that is that a game well, is that mechanical the family thing? No, nope, there's there's nothing. I nope, have there's no nothing idea. in the game that is not explained with math, which is another thing I love about the game. Uh, there, mm-hmm. There's there's one exception to this, but everything you're seeing when you see Pack Hunter, David, if you look at your hunter's stats, I can now guarantee you that hunter has the trait Pack Hunter. He probably got it from from yes. his, his mother or father. Maybe he got it from. Yeah. I don't remember if that's one you can learn from a, a trainer in a crucible, but somewhere down the line, he got Pack Hunter. Now, so then you wonder, what is Pack Hunter? What does it do? You look at the trait, and underneath the trait, it's, it clearly explains when he's close enough to other friendly units, he gets a bonus to, I think it's accuracy. Uh, I'd have to, oh no, it's two things. It's, I think it's accuracy and maybe uh, speed. I'm not sure. I'd have to check, but it'll tell you that. So you're wondering, okay, how much okay. of a bonus? Well, you click on details, which is where the actual numbers are rather than the explanations, and you see your character's default um, speed and accuracy, and you see next to it, you know, plus 10 accuracy, plus 1 speed. And you know that bonus is because he's a pack hunter. Now, you're not going to see those bonuses unless he has he's close enough and the pack hunter is in effect. Mm-hmm. How do you know it's in effect? Those little words pop up that say pack hunter. So similarly, right. oh my God, I need to yeah. I need to play so much more. Similarly, whenever you see, uh, this is another thing I love is how how clever they get with some of these traits. Um, one of the traits is uh, uh, it's not it's not drunk. It's something like that. It's uh, it's like partier, reveler, no, it's, it no, it's reveler. Reveler. reveler, reveler. So a reveler, they get drink. drunk. So a reveler <laughs> in a battle has a chance to be either drunk or hungover, which is even worse. And and it's the same thing when the, when the battle begins. Um, a little word will appear over the person saying drunk or hungover. If they're drunk, it's not so bad. It's a it's a minor hit to, again, I'd have to look at the tooltip, but I think to speed and maybe accuracy as well. If they're hungover, it's even worse. Uh, and it's random which one will affect them for any given battle. Um, there is asthmatic, for instance. If they're asthmatic, whenever they run, which is moving for both actions, moving at full speed, uh, the next turn... They can only go half speed, and it'll say out of breath, you know, over the character. So everything, every little message you're getting is pointing you towards some underlying math. Uh, and I think the game is brilliant for how, how clear it makes that if you want to sort of explore the numbers and figure out the math of what's going on. I also like when you're drunk, your character runs in like a zigzag. He can't run this. They can't run straight lines. Yeah, they they sort of represent the like reduced movement by having them take the most inefficient route to every single like square you oh, send them I to. I wasn't I wasn't it's, aware it, of that. That's great. cute. Yeah, yeah, they, they'll definitely do like these weird S's to move. Like you want them to move like a, like one square over, and they'll move two to the left, one up, and then two back to the right. Uh, so yeah, that's really cool. Now, but at the same time, I think one thing that. I was aware a lot of the stuff was happening, but I also felt a little bit overloaded the way that um, Valkyria Chronicles would sometimes leave me feeling a little bit overwhelmed. Like, there were so many different variables in play with my soldiers that it became a little hard when I was sort of selecting my mission roster to sort of 
anticipate how it would all come together. But then it was also hard once I was in mission to remember like how like what like how all these guys like what each of these characters' quirks were. So it became a thing where stuff was happening, but it didn't always feel like I was in as much control of it as 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 I would have liked. And and I think that's like it, it definitely seems like that's going to be something that rewards rewards you if you have like a real like fine attention to detail. But I tended I was treating it a little more like XCOM, where I'm just like oh, I'm going to go in here and you know standard tactics. All right, good you know good good game everybody. And I wasn't thinking like oh, okay so this is this is this person's like like I wasn't thinking of my my people as these little stacks of traits I was more thinking of them as a class first and uh you know traits second you know I I think uh, there was my reaction I think has a lot to do with with just that I'm like eh, none of these can actually be that relevant and so I just sort of pushed them in the back of my mind and that was fine and I think it sort of led to my breeding strategy so you you mentioned that when you picked your your regents you were sort of looking at fertility which is definitely the right thing to look at first it's what you should sort for uh but you really got to sort of pay attention to like you know are you are you um um you know, uh, trying to breed a reveler or someone who's dim-witted or a slow learner or an asthmatic or sickly or something like that, right? And and I just, you know, I bred my best stock. That's a terrible uh, thing to say, but yeah. And you just, and eventually those sorts of things start weeding out. And you have so many characters that they just grow old and die and I've never used them before. Um, and the, the traits that, the sort of the negative traits that... Um, I sort of let persist or that like came were ones like uh, there's one that's like flincher and it's like you get a minus penalty to evasion for melee attacks. And it's like, well, I don't want anyone to get hit in melee. So it's not like I'm, my tactics are changing. Um, I'm still going to back up with that person. I'm still going to protect them. Um, yeah, there was a, I think I sort of tried to like, engineer things towards the ones I could turn my brain on the ones that gave them more hit points. I wonder like too, like it, uh, so when you're playing, certainly on normal, you can get through to the final battle easily enough. And I think you can even win the final battle pretty easy, pretty easily. Uh, once you start playing on harder difficulties, uh, I, I think you have to start min maxing more. And presumably by the time you've decided you've played a game on normal or two games on normal, you decide, okay, I want to try hard. Um, what I think you eventually realize with all of these traits, um, is again part of the game's streamlining in that nearly every single trait, at least 90% of them, all come down to a very simple matter of modifying one of your three main stats. So in a normal RPG, you got a bunch of stats for, you know, characterized strength and dexterity, intelligence, wisdom, charisma, uh, and all these things, some are more relevant than others. Um, in, In Massive Chalice... Every character has three main stats. their strength, dexterity, and intelligence. What the game doesn't tell you, and I, I took Brad to task for this because one of the things I, I wanted to do with this game was figure out how it works. You, you know, when I love a game, I want to take apart the mechanics, and I want to sort of admire it from this clockwork perspective. How do these pieces fit together? So the dead end that I kept hitting um, is what does your strength, dexterity, and intelligence actually do? Because... 90% of the traits, if not more, all come down to modifying uh, a stat like dexterity, strength, or intelligence. Actually, it's not entirely true. A lot of them modify things like like accuracy or hit points, like you were saying, David. But a lot of them, they clearly funnel you into making choices about, do I care about strength? Do I care about dexterity? Do I care about intelligence? Um, and I think a lot of this... Uh, deciding who to breed with whom, deciding what negative traits to allow, what positive traits to encourage. Um, a lot of these decisions come down to the importance of those three base stats. Uh, one of the things the game does make clear is that dexterity is important for hunters, strength is important for caberjacks, caberjacks and intelligence is important for alchemists. You know that, and they, they show you that by whenever you look at the details screen... If you're looking at a hunter, dexterity is highlighted. If you're looking at a caberjack, strength is highlighted. And if you're looking at an alchemist, intelligence is highlighted. But what they don't explain is what those stats do in gameplay mechanic terms. Um, 
David, is this something that you ever sort of figured out or cared about? Like, did you ever get to that level of, of crunchiness with the numbers or the systems? I just assumed it affected their damage. Yep, exactly. I don't know, though. It's exactly what it does. Right? And it doesn't just affect it. It determines it. The amount of damage a character does right, okay. is its class's primary stat. If I am a hunter and I have a 20 dexterity and I attack a creature, I do 20 points of damage. That's it. I mean, your, your, your weapon also adds, adds the range. Like, I think a, a caberjack, the actual caber, does, like, I think something like six to nine points of damage. But otherwise, that's just added to his or her strength. Um, so what you're basically breeding for in this game, you know, what it comes down to when you're deciding, do I care if my hunter has reduced intelligence or increased strength? What you're deciding is how much damage that character is going to do if and when he or she hits somebody in battle. And it's that simple. Like, it all comes down to making decisions at the strategic level that will determine how much damage you're going to do at the tactical level. Uh, The the relationship between, you know, the the basic primary stat, which is affected by all these traits, which are affected by heredity and the breeding program and all of that, that all comes down to how many points of damage do I hit for in battle. And I I love that sense of focus in the design. Like, to me, once I realized that, it, it became so much easier to make decisions at the strategic level about who to breed to whom and how to determine which were my best guys, mm-hmm. who to just send off to the Sage Rights Guild. Um, you know, that, that right there, I think, informs a lot. Once you, once you realize that gameplay mechanic, it informs a lot of the decisions that you make that I think you might otherwise power through as you're learning the game. So, David, a, a moment ago, you, you, you sort of were talking about the, 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 the it's called the, the creepy eugenics aspect of it. But actually, I kind of, I kind of love this because, because the one thing I'll say is that I'm, I'm so used to, in tactical RPGs like this, having this almost complete control over what I get to take onto the field. Right, mm-hmm. and I think what what tends to be missing, and I think maybe a game like Darkest Dungeon is is a little bit similar to um, Massive Chalice in this regard. What's missing a little bit is is that feeling of, you know, you you go go to war with the army you have, not the army you want. And uh, what, what what's cool here is is this this feeling that you you it's almost like a sports game where you're, you know, you got your farm system. And you're putting your pro- you're, you're you're sort of mm-hmm. you're, you're getting your prospects from that farm system, and with each with each generation as you're sort of trying to build up your build up your winning team, you keep sort of trying to make decisions about what you what you want to focus on and what you don't. But each of those decisions, unless you're, I suppose, unless you're both really lucky and, and really good at sort of winning the genetic lottery, um, with each of those decisions, you're getting sort of unforeseen byproducts. You're, you know what I mean? It's not like XCOM where you can just like, if that sniper survives X number of missions, here's what you're going to get. That's and, and that's that's basically a guarantee. Here, I feel much more like I'm, uh, m- much more like I, I'm I'm dealing with the the almost like luck of the draw. And sort of making do with what I have, which is which is unusual for a game like this. I, I think you're exactly right, and I think that part of you know the way that I played the game was my desire to sort of um, weight the dice and lower the variance. And so my strategy of um, bursting out, taking a lot of the uh, the citadels, so I could have lots of families. They're all making hunter classes. They're all focusing on um agility uh you know the nimble traits the whatever if they're if they're you know weak it doesn't matter i don't care that's fine if they're if they're dim-witted it doesn't matter i don't care um and then you know furthermore that that gets reinforced by i don't need to upgrade all the armor i can just focus on the hunters that then allows me to 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 you know very early on get increased fertility like I had so many babies that just that rolling the die, I, I, there was just so much chaff that, uh, that, you know, that's, there's so many things that it was very easy to separate the, the wheat from the chaff. And, and I could just take the wheat and the chaff just sort of languished at the bottom and they rolled and died. And so I was able to sort of mitigate the roll of the dice by doing that. Um, I, I would, I, I wish, 
You know, I hope that there is a sequel. I wish that they keep going because to me, this game feels like something like I wish they had another year. I want, you know, I want to, I, I wish I was pushed into those positions where I had to make do, where there was a little bit more diversity. Um, it's kind of sad. All my, all my hunters looked the exact same. They all had double shot. They all had blindness there. They could all, uh, blinding shot. They all, uh, you know, it was the same tr skills for each one. Um, so I, I hope, I hope we can, we can mix it up. One of my favorite things in XCOM was when they did the expansion, they had the skill roulette and that was, they just sort of mixed everything up and no two snipers were the same. So and, you literally, uh, you weren't no, using, yeah. uh, you weren't using the enforcers or the trick shots either. Cause they have completely different skill trees. I mean, like kind of, but the, the lack of double shot wasn't great. Like sometimes like. So the enforcers, well, they get the knockback and the point blank shot. Well, the point blank shot is okay. It's fine, especially if you're using like the shotgunny thing. It does a lot of damage. But the knockback, well, what does that do? It stuns them a turn, but it does like almost no damage. So why don't I just double shot and kill the thing rather than stunning it? Um, the 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 trick shot thing had the the AOE, but with the way that most of the maps are, are focused, um, you ended up getting things lined up in a line far more than you got things in a, in a big clump. Um, you know, the, the advanced, uh, I forget what they're called, but they're the things that when you kill, they drop seeds. Uh, ruptures. When, yep. when, or no, no, yeah, yeah, cradle, when cradles, they, I'm sorry, cradles. Cradles. So when they explode, they explode in, in a in a in a pattern that allows you to again like you can you can aim it so you can shoot all three seeds. So literally like you know two hunters, one would double shot kill the thing, and then the other one could take up the seeds. And you couldn't do that with the trick shots. So yeah, I, it pretty much was just hunters. Yeah, I'm just surprised you were able to finish the game with just hunters because that doesn't based on the way the final battle works and how dramatically different it is from the other battles. Um, I guess, David, you're too good, and you need to move up to hard uh, the, the harder difficulty. I, it's it, they're just so efficient. They're just so efficient. And then the other thing is, is that the AI will attack the chalice, and that's fine for a little bit. Um, and you were able to, so like, uh, yeah. I guess if you, you know, that's the whole idea is if you keep the chalice alive. Um, yeah. Did you did so you lose they, any they, of your they, characters? No. Oh well. Okay. Because that's that. Well, I, I don't want to say too much because that's one of the cool things about the final battle is you need a healthy bloodline for a very specific reason that involves losing characters. So, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, everything was fine. It took forever, though. That's a really long battle, probably too long. Um, Tom, there's one thing I wanted to call out from from your review because it's a dynamic that that you said you really enjoy, and I'm not sure we, we paid enough attention to it. And that is just the fact that your characters do sort of age out, and and they and their and their time does pass. And you talked about ways that affected your decision making in ways that is unusual for games. Well, there's a lot of yeah, it's what I would call hero churn, and I, I think one of the complaints about the game, which again comes down to I think not understanding the design. And if you don't like it, that's fine. But the, the game is specifically designed so that there is hero churn that you don't get attached to one hero when you play XCOM. You get your favorite hero, and when he dies, you reload the battle, because you need that guy for the whole campaign. You know, not everyone plays Iron Man. Um, so Massive Chalice is built around this idea of hero churn, that they're either going to die in battle, or you're going to lose them to old age, uh, that you're not going to play through the whole game with your favorite hero. And a lot of people don't like that. Like, they want to get attached to a hero. However, I would say that that adds new things to the game uh, that you wouldn't get if this played like XCOM. And the three new things I would say it adds are, although David's kind of shot a hole in this with this idea that you can play with just hunters, but <laughs> one of the things it adds is that the battles are varied. Is that if you, in one battle, you know, if you just have your favorite hunter who's level 10, and he's got, like, the skills that David was talking about, you know, you're going to bring him on every battle. But if he's going to die of old age... And you're not going to be able to replace him uh, with another hunter necessarily with all those same skills. You're going to be forced to play with a different mix of units. You know, if you can't bring your level 10 hunter on every mission, there are going to be some missions where maybe you don't have a hunter. Um, there are going to be some missions where 
you're playing with all caberjacks or caberjacks because you didn't, you know, you don't have anyone else high enough level at that point. You're waiting for people to get old enough or to train up. Uh, so it, it varies for me, at least. It varies the battles by having hero churn, by having my favorite hero die of old age. You know, I'm not going to get to play every battle with the same five units. Uh, the other thing I think it adds uh, is you're, you're going to uh, lose them to old age anyway. Uh, so that when you're playing in a battle and your favorite hero dies, you know, that point in XCOM where you reload the game because you can't play without your favorite hero, you let that go because you know he or she is going to die of old age anyway. It, it creates a whole different sensibility for losing characters during battle. It makes it acceptable because that character, that character's death is imminent. So if that character dies at home in bed of old age... You're going to lose him just the same as you would if that character dies because a rupture explodes next to him. Um, and the final thing that I think the hero churn does is it encourages, it allows the game to emphasize other kinds of persistence. Instead of the persistence where I have my favorite hunter, I play through the whole game with that hunter, you know, you have that in XCOM. Instead of that persistence, the attachment to one character, there are two other kinds of persistence. Uh, one of them is artifacts. And I love this idea that when you have a hero of a certain level who dies, that hero has gotten so powerful, has had such great adventures in his or her life, that the hero leaves behind an artifact. And now, every time the person, and you decide who's going to inherit this artifact, you give it to one of your other characters. And then when that character dies, it gets handed down to another character, always within the same house, by the way. So, there's this persistence of the artifact, and they'll name the weapon. You know, it's a specific weapon for a specific class, and it gets a name, which is really cool. And the weapon, by the way, can level up. Uh, so you have persistent artifacts, but more importantly, because you're not focusing on the persistence of your one favorite character, the persistence is in the bloodlines, um, is in this family that you are shepherding through these 300 years. Um, and that was one of the things that I really loved doing in this Game Diary series that I worked that I wrote, it, it forced me to go back because I wanted to write down what was happening so I could talk about it. It, it really led me to look at these specific families um, and what traits happened to them and what adventures they lived through with the random events, for instance. Um, and I, I had never seen that in a game that wasn't like Crusader Kings, for instance. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot of hero churn, and right. I feel that ultimately, yep, it makes some people hate the game, fair enough. But for me, I think it's vital... It's a vital design choice they made that makes Massive Chalice so special. Yeah, and something I want to something I want to emphasize here is I still view Massive Chalice. It's it's a game that confuses me a little bit. It's a game that I often feel uh, like I am, as you said, like not quite alighting upon the right thing to do. Uh, not not quite making the ideal move. None of that really bothers me. Like each of these games I played. Even if they end sort of, you know, in tears, um, it, it's it's one of those games where that does succeed in making failure fun, if only because it doesn't feel like one of those games where pr progress is supposed to be this so linear. You know what I mean? Where where like it, you know, it, like again, using the XCOM example just because there, a lot of times in an XCOM campaign, if you hit a certain point and you you sort of lost your varsity team. Uh, and, and you're forced to rely on a lot of rookies. You you kind of know you're screwed, uh, but but here it it feels like a like losing is okay. Like it, it's very much a thing where you know you 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 burn playthroughs to to improve your understanding of the game. Uh, kind of like like uh, you know a, a strategy roguelike, as it were. And, and two, uh, there, there's just so much variety that can that, that can happen within the game, and the what what you what you end up getting in terms of heroes, uh, that it, it doesn't feel quite as, it doesn't feel like a game that discourages, even if you're, even if things are going wrong, uh, if that makes sense. It doesn't feel like a game that tells you, aha, like you're, you're, you're totally screwed and you might as well give them, give up on this playthrough right now because there's, there, there's right. no way out of it from here. There are moments when you're doomed, but it doesn't quite feel like so much like there's all these checkpoints you have to hit. Well, in that's because there's no the real economic death spiral. Is it that the game is... I mean, you can run into that, by the way. I mean, that can happen, but uh, it's easy to avoid because what you're just trying to do is survive for 300 years. And you can get those... You can get through those 300 years 
you know, having lost all your territories, having no high-level characters. I mean, you can keep failing battles, and you're still going to power through the, the timeline. Um, but all you have to do is just survive those 300 years. Uh, and that's relatively easy to do. The hard part is surviving and being powerful enough to win that final battle. So there's never a point... Oh. So I have a question yeah, for you both. I, I was oh, just going to say, there, there's never a point where you get a game-over screen uh, unless literally you lose your last territory. Uh, so if you're willing to suck it up and deal with yeah. the failed battles, you can make it, for the most part, through those 300 years, but then you get to the final battle and you've, you've lost the game. And that's happened to me many times. Like I think twice I've gotten to the final battle and just haven't won it. Um, uh, so what I was going to ask you, uh, and we're going to try not to get into spoilers. If it turns out we end up spoiling the end of the game, uh, we'll, we'll have our producer insert a clear warning right about here. Skip ahead to one hour and ten seconds. Because I just have one really... I have one main question for you both. Uh, and David, obviously you broke the game a little bit, so we'll, we'll take what you say with, uh, you know, under advisement. But something that I run into with, with, with games like this, and, and particularly end games, and we, we talked about this a bit with the Invisible Ink devs, uh, is that creating these last missions, these last encounters, can be really, really difficult. Uh, like for me, when I discovered FTL was all about this end game boss and it's really like a lot of the feeling of exploration and excitement went out of the game for me because I discovered, you know, retroactively, oh, well, it turns out all these choices you thought, you know, you were free to make. Well, actually, here's what you kind of need to have ready to go by the time you reach the end of the game. And this is, this is a difficult thing for uh for rpg and, and strategy roguelikes to, to to really land uh and we've seen different approaches with it i think invisible ink had uh, an okay uh finale although i still think it it was one of those things where at the very end of the game it tells you oh well here's all the things you really needed i'm kind of curious does this game also fall into that trap of hits the last encounter and you discover you've been building toward the wrong thing all along I would say the last encounter it plays differently than any other like it, it's 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 essentially a horde mode which isn't a which isn't a, a battle sort of that that's not a that's not a game mode in the regular game you never have to survive against waves and waves and waves of enemies so maybe like you know bringing in healing potions is really helpful Maybe if you're playing melee characters, I don't know. I can spoil the game if you guys want, but uh, yeah. So I do think, Rob, what you're asking is absolutely true. And it's like I said, like I love the reveal. I loved discovering this. Uh, it changes the way you play the game once you discover this. Um, but so go ahead, light the spoiler lamp. Uh, fast forward, you know, five minutes if you want to discover this for yourself, which I encourage. However, I also understand if you feel like, hey, I don't have the time to play a game wrong, get to the final mission and realize, oh, this is what I was supposed to do. Uh, what you need to do is get to the final mission with healthy bloodlines and, I think, some tactical diversity. Uh, again, if you're as good as David, fine, just make hunters, but I've never been able to do that. You need some tactical diversity because it is a horde mode. Things are rushing at you, way more things than you've ever had to fight at once. It's ridiculous. Like, if you get to that final mission, and I can understand that reaction that... You know, hey, I've never had to fight like this before. The game is breaking. It's making me face a challenge that it hasn't trained me how to deal with. Um, but the way you deal with it is you get to the final mission and you need a history of powerful bloodlines. Because what's going to happen mm -hmm. is that, and David, you haven't run into this yet because you didn't lose anybody. But what's going to happen is when a character dies, it is replaced with his or her immediate predecessor who, who uh, down the ancestry. Mm. So it's bringing home this idea, if I'm just bringing in some Johnny-come-lately new bloodline, or, even worse, some hero that I've just hired uh, by scouring the kingdom for new heroes, that person dies, they're out of the game. If, however, I am bringing in vanguards from, from bloodlines with a long history of, of, of characters, uh, then when one of them falls he or she is replaced with one of her uh, ancestors. Uh, so what's going to happen is you're playing this horde mode. Your characters are going to be fighting valiantly and dying and being replaced by their ancestors. And the idea is that this magical, massive chalice 
every time something dies, it goes into the chalice and it stores this magical mystery. And whenever you deal with these random encounters, uh, a lot of times one of the options is uh, just throw it in the chalice and see what happens. So you have this idea that the chalice is this, this mystery that things have just been thrown into for 300 years. And in the final battle, when you're defending it, these things in the form of your dead ancestors are coming back out of the chalice. Uh, so you basically have, if you've played the game right, and if you have powerful uh, uh, houses, bloodlines, you basically have extra lives that will get you through that difficult battle. And these extra lives come so from, I, from having long bloodlines. I, I just wanted, wanted to make it, make it clear. I thought you were talking about, like, did you have a bloodline die during the mission? Like, like I never ran out of people. I certainly had characters die, but it's not like I burned through all of my all all the people. I'm not I, that 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 I don't see how it's how it's particularly possible. So, Rob, to answer to, to just to answer Rob's question, that's something that it's like an FTL, and you realize, oh, it's all about the final battle. That's something that in Massive Chalice, it's super easy to just play and live for three hundred years, but you get to this final battle. And you're facing a completely different kind of battle, a completely different kind of challenge, a completely different emphasis on combined arms. Um, and yes, yeah, some people might feel a little bit uh, sucker punched by this or, or blindsided. Okay, that definitely. But why does it? Why, why do you think it feels like a sucker punch? So, so to me, that's that's clearly the the, the game. I don't. I like, don't. Just to be right clear, I don't feel like, it's a sucker punch. I loved it. I feel it's a reveal. Like here's this cool final gimmick, but, but, and I, I loved it. Uh, discovering this, but I can feel why some people might feel sucker punched. I, I'm trying to think of like what, how, how do you play the game, and and you don't have bloodlines. Okay, let me. Uh, yeah, let, I, I let can me also. Fill you in. I, yeah, I, 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 I fill you in on how you go wrong well, there, David. Yeah, go, but go ahead, Rob, because I probably did the same thing as you. Uh, well, I mean, I let yeah. I let bloodlines die off, uh, and and. Not more like more than a few times because they just like, you know, someone was really old, uh, just hanging out in the keep, and they weren't the right class combination I really wanted anymore. Uh. So I just kind of want to start fresh with a completely different bloodline, different set of characters, and just sort of prune that little uh, branch off the genealogical bonsai tree. That was that. That's how I would. Or end you up just rely on a lot of times that that hire new heroes thing, like scour the kingdom for heroes, or. You, you get attached to one of the heroes that you rescue from a mission, you know, or it just gives you a free hero who's high level. Um. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was never a, that was, that was never a thing. I, I, I think it, it sort of telegraphs it too, where it says like, finish the game with your original bloodlines as an achievement. Ah, right, right. And my, my assumption was, mm. was like, oh, okay. But, but also it was just like, well, I'll just keep, keep playing. And how many, how many, uh, how many bloodlines well, did you idea. have? Cause I had like, I think I had five. Right. And I think it's no accident that you have five slots in any given mission. Uh, it, what it's basically pointing you towards is get five keeps and keep, you know, by the time 300 years is up is you to maximize your sort of return is you want five families going. Um, and that, that leaves you just the right, you know, you, you then have a territory left over for a sage rights guild or two, maybe, uh, a crucible, two crucibles is awesome, by the way. And crucibles are where you appoint what's mm-hmm. called a standard who is, uh, what's the guy in Dune, Gurney Halleck, or, uh, the, the guy who's like the trainer, like you appoint yeah. Captain Picard. Oh, that's right. Patrick Stewart. Very good, David. Yeah. Very nice. Uh, you appoint a trainer who's a standard and then that person gives, uh, David, you mentioned that, that they can they might confer some of their positive as well as negative traits, but more mm-hmm. importantly, they give every year a portion of their experience to everybody who's under, I think it's 14. 14, once somebody turns 15, they become a playable character. But a character is born at age zero, of course. They age for 14 years, and every year they inherit part of the experience points of their mother and father. So... Your new heroes, ideally by the end of the game, you're getting new heroes at the, the level cap is 10. Ideally, by the end of the game, mm-hmm. all your new heroes are coming into play at level 8, you know. Uh, so if you uh, – and the way you do this is by appointing – in my most successful games, I've had two standards. You build a crucible and you put a standard in each one. They also add their experience points to a character in every year of that character's life up until they're 15 years old. So that's another thing that the first time you play through, you may not realize 
what you're trying to do is have high-level regents and partners, those are the mothers and fathers who have babies, and high-level standards. Um, and then that means when you get a new character, he or she isn't going to be, you know, level two or three. He or she is going to be level eight. You're going to get to pick, you know, all the way to the very last trait on the skill tree. Um, and you're going to have powerful characters to get to choose from anytime you need to fight a battle. Okay. So a, a, a part of the game that I was terrible at, and I don't know, maybe just because there is no right way, is the those events. Right. You've mentioned that, you know, you got attached yeah. to characters with events. like So... Um, You'll be you'll be on this the strategy map and the timeline's moving and all of a sudden a pop up comes up and it says, "Hey, two of your warriors have had a child. They didn't tell you about it. That's not cool. What do you want to do?" It never worked out for me. I could not, for the life of me, be a good ruler. I always was cutting babies in half. Oh man, uh, it's definitely it's tricky. It feels like the dice are loaded. Like there's a there's a one in three chance of something good happening. But I don't know. I had some oh, good yeah. things happen. I had a couple fighters who weren't getting along, and I had a few options. I was gonna I could have you know put them in the octagon. And they could fight it out between themselves. But I decided um to send them on a road trip uh, through the countryside, and you know maybe they'll learn something about their country and maybe learn something about themselves too. <laughs> And uh, so they returned like three years later, uh, you know, bosom buddies, and, yeah, and uh, got a new trait. And that's out the of only it. way you can uh, get patriotic. patriotic. By the way, is some of those random events unlock traits that you will never otherwise get. There's no way to become patriotic other than through that random trait, which I love. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I just got I just got depressed. People, that was so <laughs> everyone. Everyone was as exiled, depressed. They were confused. Oh man, I had I had a guy whose um whose daughter wandered into the cadence, uh whatever whatever the, the into the corruption, and uh, he was like, you know, do you think do you think I'll ever see her again? And you know, you know me, I'm not one to give people false hope. Like you know, we have to face reality, man. Like, and I was like, dude, like I'm sorry, but your daughter's dead. And he was like, thanks for thanks for being a straight shooter with me. So I was like, hey cool right like that probably worked out fine and uh then he went off and apparently got it went on a rampage and uh now my entire kingdom was depressed uh so one of the things they do with those random events is if you've played as much as i have you will start to recognize some of them and you will see oh like like the one you're talking about rob you'll see that and you'll think oh i don't want this guy to be depressed i'm going to try a different uh attempt this time you know i've seen a repeat event now i'm the wiser I will take advantage of my knowledge, and I will choose something different. Uh, every single choice on these these random events has a die roll that can go one of at least two ways. So even if you've seen it before, you are not guaranteed to get the same oh. result by picking the same uh, choice. Uh, it's yeah, it's it's very insidious that oh, they did wow. that. Uh, but it adds, you know, I mean, it's replayability but, right there, I guess. Yeah. That's really cool. Uh, yeah, so it, it, it does just be called out. I, I, I think this is also just a really nice game to play, if that makes sense. Like, just in terms of, like, I actually really like the art. I like the music. I, I love the, the writing and the, and the, and the voices of the, of the two main uh, Chalice characters. Uh, I just found it a, a really charming game on top of everything else we've said. Uh, that it was just a, it, it, was, it was a very mellow uh, cheer, cheering game to play, even when things were going were, were going horribly wrong. One of the things that I love about it is that it minimizes what I call the interruption effect, and we all know this from XCOM, and that you're playing XCOM and you're setting up your base and you're getting all this cool strategic level stuff going, and then a battle happens, and you're like, oh, but wait, I wanted to, I was building this other stuff. Uh, oh, this is this is most notable in the Total War games, for instance. You know, you're playing the strategic level. You're building buildings, you're moving your armies around, yep. then a battle happens, and you're like, oh, wait, I was playing the strategic game, now I have to play this little tactical game over here, and then you're playing the tactical game, you're getting into, you know, moving the armies around and the spectacle of it, and then the battle is over, and you're playing this turn-based game again. Uh, so I, I think Massive Chalice does a fantastic job of, of minimizing that interruption effect, um, in that you know a battle will come every 8 to 12 years, uh, Furthermore, there's there's really not a lot of gameplay, per se, on the strategic level. There are choices to be made, uh, 
but you're not playing a game like you are in Total War, where you're allocating resources and you're shifting armies around and, and doing all this positional stuff. Um, so every time a battle rolls around, I knew it was coming. I knew it was going to be within an 8 to 12 year range. Sometimes I'm like, no, not yet. I just want one more year to finish the, you know, this new weapon I was researching. Uh, but it's never the sense of, hey, I'm playing this strategic game. I don't want to play this tactical game. You know, it's always like, it's, it's a bit like Invisible Ink. And then it's just a sequence of these tactical challenges and the stuff in between. It's a few choices you're making, but it's not the game per se. It's not the, it's not the, the gameplay. It's not, it's not like a half of the gameplay, the strategic level. Yeah, I, I, I definitely noticed that as well. And I, I couldn't quite put my finger on why. And I, I, I think you've nailed it there because I definitely, I got that feeling less in XCOM, but I am definitely familiar with it in Total War, the feeling yeah. that how dare you interrupt me with, with this other half of the game that I'm currently not right. interested in at, the, at this moment. Well, in XCOM too, it is like part of it in XCOM is, is uh, you, you get blocked. Like you never know when a battle is going to happen. You're always on tenter hooks. Like, is it going to be yet? Is it going to be yet? But, but it, I like how the cadence, true to their name, has a very specific rhythm. You know, it's always 8 to 12 years, 8 to 12 years. You know, I'm 8 years from the last battle. And by the way, that timeline at the top, you can always see how long it's been. Like, and you can always scroll that thing around and look at the different events. Um, but there's very much a rhythm to it. And that, by the way, also means by the time you hit that final battle at the end of 300 years, that means any given game of Massive Chalice is basically 30 tactical battles. Uh, so so overall, uh, it, it sounds like we're we're all very high on this game. Um, I, I would say for for me, I would say it's one of the most like exciting uh, tactical combat games. Like one of the most exciting things to come out of that that XCOM model in I don't know the past ten years. Like I can't think of another tactical RPG uh, that I've enjoyed as much as Massive Chalice. Uh, for me, I think. The, the tactical part fell flat. I think a lot of the strategy stuff is, is great. It's got a lot of promise and a lot of really interesting stuff, and I immensely enjoyed my time with it, and I want to see more. Uh, but I'm a, I'm a little bit colder, I think, on it than, uh, than Tom. You know, next time, David, try playing with the other two classes I as think, well. I think, you know what? I, I ruin things for myself I'm, all the time. I'm... Right, I'm just teasing you that way, but uh, but yeah, I, I, you know, if if you basically cut out two thirds of what, what I feel is the gameplay balance, I can totally understand why you would feel that way. Yeah, that, that's that's always an interesting tension too, and it's something I, I struggle with uh, less so these days. Cause I'm just not as good at games as as David, but there, it's definitely an awkward feeling when when there's the thing you can do to just sort of cheese a game, but then you also can see the dynamics it wants you to be dealing with. But you can get around them if you want to, and that can be that can be a difficult thing to to deal with. Uh, yeah, and I I definitely have enjoyed the game. Uh, I'm still I'm still sort of coming to terms with it, uh, so I can't make you know quite as quite as warm a recommendation as Tom certainly. But um, it it was cer- certainly has been a really enjoyable experience. Uh, you know, being kind of a crap chalice protector, uh, and I'm really looking forward to being a good one someday. Uh, so that's that's where th- things are at with Massive Chalice. Uh, pretty 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 strong recommendation from Tom, and uh, I guess from David, we've just learned a valuable lesson about uh, about ruining things for yourself. <laughs> Little morality tale, courtesy of David Heron. That's right. Uh, anyway, that's uh, that'll do it for our Massive Chalice show. Uh, my thanks to Tom and David for spending this afternoon with us. My thanks to our producer, Michael Hermes, for putting this episode together, uh, especially on short notice as we're getting to it pretty late in the week here. And we'll be back next week with uh, some other topic, certainly, hopefully. Uh, until then, this has been Through Zed. Good night.